please join me in welcoming Yossi Mickey Mouse Chayas for the closing part of his three-part lunch series. Good luck. Thank you. Bring it home. All right. Thank you very much, Ari, again. And thank Wait, this is a bit short. Well, I think the table's further away than usual. Good idea to get the graphics as large as they can be. So thanks, everybody, for coming back. At least that one, yeah. I think that makes it better. Um, third, and sadly the last of these presentations on visual Kabbalah. There could have been more. We probably could have done it better, but this was the first time. And uh, if, you've been, if you've been getting a taste of my work in progress over the last couple of weeks, so today's lecture is no exception. Once again, I'm sharing with you work that is... Um, let's just say, still work that I'm still working on. And uh, Ari's been kind enough to print for me in a, uh, a still unpublished lecture that, well, still unpublished article, I guess you would call it, on this topic. And uh, so basically you're getting tomorrow's publication today. Um, and the only other thing I'll say is that uh, if so far you've seen that talking about the visualization of Kabbalah ideally means that uh, you've attended a little Kabbalah introductory session or you have a, some very modest, at least, uh, acquaintance with some basic concepts of the Kabbalah. So today's Today's session on uh, Sabbatianism is a, a kind of a raising the raising of the ante, because in, to do this really well means that in addition to knowing a little bit about Kabbalah, it would be very useful if you knew a little bit about Sabbatianism. Um, but and I will say a few things about about Sabbatianism, just out of curiosity. Uh, how, how many of you even have a basic inkling of what I mean when I say Sabbatianism? You've had uh huh. You've heard it three times, <laughs> but you don't really know what I'm talking about. Okay, I understand. I've also been at lectures on topics three times or more that I still don't understand, so that's okay. But. Um, um, there's a little bit of uh, review here built into the program, but let's just, let's just take off and hope that it works. We're also pioneering a new technology today. No PowerPoint, but Prezi. So we must say a special prayer and hope that that works. Right. So here, of course, is a picture of Gershom Sholem, just to remind us that we're in this tradition of uh, the academic study of Kabbalah and that uh, one of the things that Sholem stressed about Kabbalah and that I've stressed myself in these last few weeks is the extent to which it's a quite unusual form of mysticism if you call it mysticism at all if you choose to use that term which isn't a very Jewish term really but if you do then it is different uh, most 
of the forms of mysticism that you'll read about or put an emphasis on the subjective experience of the mystic. And Kabbalah puts a, an emphasis on the objective description of the divine realm. It's much less interested in how, how was that for you and much more interested in what you might call that kind of gnosis with a G. I could say gnosis, but I think that would be wrong. Um, but that is what I mean, like that you know something about the divine. That's the Kabbalistic way of approaching things. And I think that that's something that certainly contributed to the fact that Kabbalists uh, were ready to diagram, to map their system of uh, understanding the nature of the divine realm. They could map it, they could, they could graph it because it was highly objectified and it wasn't just, it wasn't like saying, make a, a diagram of how you feel about God. Sorry, you know, maybe you could do like a bell curve or something, but, but it might not go further than that. So that's uh, a picture of Sholem. I've told you that, uh, that the Kabbalists were using very simple but also really ubiquitous diagrammatic forms or schemata that were all over the place in the learned culture of the Middle Ages. This is an example of a, of a work of, uh, of logic that used the so-called Porphyrian tree. Um, I also showed you on more than one occasion the concentric circles that were used to visualize the cosmos going back to Ptolemy, going back to the ancient Greeks, and this was something that you know, I can, um, if you just, one second, if I back up, one of the cool things about Prezi is that you get to just kind of fiddle around with it while you're working. You don't have to be wedded to a certain trajectory. But if, I, if you see this image, this is a great example of a, of a Christian cosmological diagram where you see both the concentric circles of our planetary system with, of course, the Earth at the center, and it's bounded by the zodiac, the, the constellations of the zodiac, and those in turn are bounded by some kind of, usually uh, it will be like an intellective realm or something like that, depending upon who's responsible for the, for the diagram. But in the realm that goes beyond the starry night, so to speak, to the heaven, of the heavens, whereas you know in Kabbalah you saw there spherotic trees. In Christian representations, you have Jesus and the saints. So that's the realm of the divine for the medieval Christian um, that's beyond the. That, yeah, basically. That's, or or um, the spherotic tree. Uh, but that's the realm of the divine, whatever, however you would visualize the divine in a particular context. So that's just some examples of Jewish versions of these forms. We know those already, and we've seen some of these early parchments that are inscribed with the arboreal form. That's from the Vatican. This one I showed you as well from Oxford that was created by a, a a Scottish Hebraist named James Hepburn um, in the 16th century based on a Jewish original. 
And <clears throat> this, this, you will recall, is, uh, I can make it a little. This is like, can people buy these on the market these days, or are they not available for sale? I mean, the originals are, uh, if they did come up, they would come up at, at Sotheby's. You can't. I mean, you can you can you can talk to me about getting a bootleg oh, poster, oh, no. you know. But to the originals. Um, I know that. Uh, I mean, I worked very closely with a collector in, in based in northern Tel Aviv named uh, William Gross, and he's just recently purchased some oh, yeah. something very special. And oh, you've been to his house with a group, no, we right? Oh yeah. Well, Rufus Lema. Hopefully, he'll be well next time. Well, the nicer ones are certainly in the certainly in the tens of thousands of dollars. I don't. Okay. Good. Good. Good for you, Mark. But the um, some some of these. This one simply it's hard to do justice to this thing. But um, this particular one is. I think this is the Vatican one. There are about a dozen copies that with very, very um, slight differences. But we've seen this. This again, if you just, you're seeing, th this is like the Christian one we saw a few minutes ago was, was this part down here, but and Jesus was here. But here's, a, here's our Kabbalistic Jesus, if you'll excuse me for putting it that way. Okay. Let's keep on before I say anything else that's too incriminating. Um, okay. Uh, what I wanted to, um, a point I wanted to make now was that if you look at the history of these visualizations of the divine realm, one of the things that emerges is that, um, on the one hand, Jews are making these <coughs> diagrams going back to the origins of Kabbalah, and at the same time, on the other, uh, Christians are very interested in Kabbalah going back to the earliest period of, of Kabbalah's emergence. And I want to say even more that than simply uh, that the Christians were interested in Kabbalah, but that the Christians were very interested in the visual, visual dimension of Kabbalah. They made their own diagrams, often with Christian interpolations, and they were very interested in the Jewish diagrams, and we find that some of the important Jewish diagrams have a kind of background that show their kind of engagement with uh, Christian elements in different ways. So, for, for example, the one I showed you a moment ago that was copied by a Christian Hebraist from a Jewish Hebrew original. Or this one, which is modeled on a diagram produced by a rabbi named Jacob Tzemach, Yaakov Tzemach, who was a Portuguese high court official who was an educated man in Portugal, living as a converso, living as a Christian, who was basically ran away from Portugal and returned to the Jewish fold officially and studied intensively and quickly became one of the leading rabbis of the period. And he created one of the <coughs> early diagrams of the 17th century that was widely reproduced. 
this also is an example of a manuscript that I found not so long ago that um, you know if you if you look at it closely enough you have to look and it says here Tzemach he writes his last name almost like to say ah this is my comment Tziur Ze Kachaya Metsuyar Vekatuv Miyad Harav Zichrono Livracha Ukmochen Tziarti Po. So Tzemach says, I was, I'm copying from a manuscript in the autograph of Chaim Vital, his own, Chaim Vital's own manuscript, and this is the diagram that I found in the manuscript which I'm reproducing. So Tzemach, this converso from Portugal who's now copying Lurianic diagrams. This should give some inspiration to all of us that he was a full-grown adult who was... It's unclear how he could have received any kind of formal Jewish or even informal Jewish education more than 100 years after the expulsion, right? This is a converso community. We, don't, we know of people lighting Shabbat candles in secret, but not about whole... Uh, operations to produce highly literate, erudite sages of the Jewish tradition. So he apparently, in a very short span of time, as, a, as an adult, mastered rabbinic literature and Kabbalah. And, uh, and in this second diagram on the facing page, he said, this is my attempt to... to, to Tzemach says, this is my attempt to create an, a diagram that is even more um, responsible to a greater number of details in the, in, in the lore than the one that I found uh, copied, uh, that was created by Vital. So Tzemach is a central figure in this whole story. Um, this is a very early manuscript, although not an autograph, Autograph meaning the, the manuscript that was written by the author of the manuscript. Okay, that's like manuscript technical term. Um, it looks really wonky, but basically that's a that's meant to look like a face. And you've seen this before. I showed it to you last week in a somewhat more recognizable form, but I chose this because it's so old. This seems to be um, based on a, a, an anthropomorphic diagram of the primordial atom that was created by the architect, you might say, of canonical Lurianic Kabbalah, the man responsible for Etz Chaim, Mayor Poppers. I, I spoke about this a little bit last week. And um, here we see that for the first time in the middle of the 17th century, Jews are taking this image of the primordial atom and the primordial Adam, I remind you, is this figure who, in Luria's Kabbalah, plays the role of almost a, what we would call a demiurge. Yeah, I think that's how you say it in English, right? Dem, a demiurge is a, kind of the, a second-tier creator god, that the real god is above it all, and there's a, but the god who's more familiar and more anthropomorphic is, is described in this way. The, but earlier representations were all geometrical. Now we're starting to see faces and sometimes more than faces. So the anthropomorphic visualization comes in only in the middle of the 17th century with the diagrams that Popers creates for his students. I mentioned to you last week also that 
just a couple of decades later, nearly, well, nearly 30 years later, that industrious and learned Christian named Christian Knorr von Rosenwort in, Salz, in Sulzbach uh, in, in Germany creates this incredible collection of translated texts into Latin and uh, includes many diagrams in his collection, including diagrams of his own fashioning. I think this is more or less as far as we got last week. And here I just quickly show how Jews, this is another wrinkle on this Jewish Christian thing that the Jews took back, so to speak. They, they, they took Jewish Kabbalistic visualizations created by a Christian Kabbalist and brought them back into the exclusively Jewish Kabbalistic uh, inner circles by creating these long scrolls that open with four frames that were first drafted by Christian Knorr van Rosenrot. And this, on the far right, you're actually seeing um, the first and only printed example of uh, an Elan scroll that was printed in Warsaw, as I mentioned as well. You can see how long it goes, but I'm not going to spend too much time scrolling through it. So we come now to this main subject at hand today, which is what happens when you get a little bit into the 17th century and uh, you get into the 1660s, in fact, and all of a sudden one of the schools of Kabbalah goes heretical on you. You know, that happens sometimes. Everything was going just fine. And that, you know, some very clever people decide that they want to go heretical on you. Now, I say that with, uh, you know, with tongue-in-cheek to some extent because I, one of my basic problems, I suppose, as an intellectual historian is that it's, to me, it's very hard to distinguish between statements that are heretical and statements that are that are not heretical. I, it was, to me, saying it's heretical usually tells us more about the heresy hunter than it does about the object uh, being referred to in that way. Like it can be very arbitrary. You, you see some outrageous comment in the Talmud, but that's not heretical. Why? Because it says it in the Talmud. I don't know. Or you can say it about so many things in in the Jewish. Uh, corpus, you know, the Jewish uh, library. But okay, the, the problem with Sabbatianism really isn't so much what was said by the Sabbatian Kabbalists. The problem with Sabbatianism is that it didn't end well. See, had it ended well, nobody would have been complaining too much about the about this heresy part of it. But it, just to refresh your memories, in the 1660s, a, a very uh, charismatic figure by the name of Shabtai Tzvi was, ident well, was identified by a great Kabbalist who was living in Gaza at the time, Gaza in the 17th century, the Gaza Strip. Have you heard of the Gaza Strip? Uh, that was the most highly populated Jewish neighborhood in the land of Israel in the 17th century. There was no place where there were more Jews in the 17th century than there, <laughs> which is, a, speaking of ironies. Um, but uh, Nathan was there, and Shab when Shabtai Tzvi visited him there, Shabtai Tzvi was born in Izmir, then called in Smyrna, um, 
on the western coast of t Turkey. Um, but when he came to, to Gaza to visit the Jewish community there and met Nathan of Gaza, Nathan convinced him that he was the Messiah. Of course, there's a huge backstory and uh, a wonderful fat volume by Gershom Sholem called Shabtai Tzvi, The Mystical Messiah, which is still very much worth reading. Um, but Nathan, Nathan explained to Shabtai Tzvi why in Kabbalistic terms he had to be the Messiah and he explained as a kind of PR person for Shabtai Tzvi and the movement that he began to build, he, began, he, he used Lurianic concepts to explain the fact that Shabtai Tzvi did weird things. And this is, he did weird things all the time, even before the movement ended badly, but the same basic logic applied to Shabtai Tzvi's strange behaviors before his ultimate apostasy and with regard to his ultimate apostasy, his conversion to Islam. The logic was very simple for those of you who've gone to Kabbalah 101 or the Thursday night series, you know it, it's coming. God creates the world, there's a little primordial mishap and these lights, the vessels of light that were supposed to hold the light of creation and begin that trickle-down emanation that would ultimately generate or result in the, in the creation of the world we know. Um, those those uh, vessels broke, the famous Shvirat uh, Kelim, and the sparks of light scattered, including no few, to the nether realms in the darkness and so Kabbalah, Luriana Kabbalah already has this idea that you do things, you, you fulfill commandments and do nice things and pursue social justice and, and kiss your mother's hands and all of those things you do because they restore harmony and oneness to the cosmos because and any, anything that you're doing is soul spark work because those sparks are everywhere. So when you have a cup of tea, there's some sparks in there. You drink it with the right kind of intentionality. You can restore those sparks. And so the logic of Nathan of Gaza is <clears throat> those things that look weird to, to you are actually the Messiah's secret operations to get out sparks that no one else could get out besides him because he's willing to take the plunge. He's willing to get dirty. Um, and when he converts to Islam, it's the same logic. So why would the Messiah convert to Islam? Because there's sparks there. There's nothing worse than Islam's, but Islam's doing very well. So must be getting a lot of energy from those sparks. The only way to, to take the fuel rods out of what's animating Islam is to become a Muslim, get access to that darkness, and then from the inside, disable it. It's a covert operation. Now, most of the Jewish world responds to that like, when Israel would go like this, like, yeah, like my, yeah. So... Um, <clears throat> So as a movement, that's more or less the end of it. But Natan, Nathan of Gaza, is such a creative Kabbalist, and he writes so much. And so much of it isn't 
specifically targeting Shabtai Tzvi and explaining Shabtai Tzvi, but, but sort of fleshing out his, his own version of Luriana Kabbalah that is kind of poetic and beautiful and almost sort of proto-Hasidic and its way of expressing the concepts. It can be actually quite touching. When you're used to reading Luriana Kabbalah and it's just a you kind of can get bored. It's so mechanistic, and there's a, somehow Nathan of Gaza managed to write a version of this that's that's a little more has a little more energy, a little more soul to it, and a little more color. And and he whatever he says, cool things. And uh, we're in the we're we're talking about material, even the non-heretical. Let's still maintain that that delusion, right? That the non-heretical, normal Luriana Kabbalah is being circulated in manuscript at this time. It's not being circulated in books. There was one book in 1648 published with Lurianic material in it. But it's going to take another 100 years before people start publishing, even more than that, really. The first copy, the first time Etz Chaim was printed was at the end of the 18th century by a, by a maskil in Eastern Europe. So things are getting copied in manuscripts, and the manuscripts, sometimes they, sometimes they say who wrote them, sometimes they don't. Bottom line is Nathan's Kabbalah sort of seeps in to the groundwater. Right? It's not so easily distinguished for most people from anybody else's Luriana Kabbalah. It's just, just another form of Luriana Kabbalah that isn't even so, so obviously different. Like you can read it and I like, like, like I'm saying, you might think, oh, this is actually kind of good, you know, but you wouldn't necessarily read it and go, what the fuck, this is not Luriana Kabbalah, this is some kind of heretical, you know, interloper or whatever. It's not like that. So anyway, so Nathan of Gaza, He's the guy who's the architect of Sabbatianism. And if you understand sort of the point I'm getting at more broadly with regard to Sabbatianism and heresy, you will uh, understand when I say that uh, it's, how shall I put this? If you were to be a heresy hunter and go out looking for fragments of Nathan's teachings in books written in, you know, since the late 17th century and then for the next couple hundred years, and you decided that anywhere you could find Nathan's DNA, you were looking at a closet Sabatian and you better out them. Then you would then, first of all, then you would be doing what a lot of Kabbalah scholars have been doing for the last hundred years. I mean, this has been, this is especially reflects the approach of Gershom Sholem and the first generation or so of his students. You find this Nathan DNA and you say, I outed another one. But this behavior goes back to, already goes back to the to the 17th century. This is, and certainly is going in full gear in the 18th century. This is the famous policy of Rabbi Jacob Emden, uh, 
And some people now want to push back the origins of orthodoxy in the Jewish world precisely to this moment when the heresy hunters go on the loose in the Jewish world. We literally didn't have that before. Right? And what is orthodoxy if not a reactionary movement? It's not like our ancestors were orthodox. Sorry, I say that as a guy who like basically keeps Shabbos and kosher and all of that. Okay, so I'm not saying that I'm not sp I'm not speaking about observing traditions, right? Keeping kosher. I'm saying being orthodox is uh, new. It's a reactionary movement that emerges after the reform movement, right? Orthodoxy is a younger movement than the reform movement. There was the reform movement before, right? Do you understand what, what I'm saying? So in, it doesn't mean that people didn't keep Shabbos. It means that all of a sudden being orthodox meant that you were anti-something and that there was heresy out there and that there was a, the, a breach in the dam that needed to be, you know, shored up. And that, you know, you, that the walls needed to be built. Or the, you know, the, what I call them, I said it before to this group, I think, the Muhammad Ali rope-a-dope form of Judaism had to be created, you know, to weather the storm of the external world, which was now all of a sudden at odds. Yeah. Uh, was it a Baba Misa that Shabbat Tzvi was forced to change? And Not a Baba Misa. No, you mean forced to convert to Islam? He could, he could have. Yeah, that that's that's not a Baba Misa. That's historically true. In Islam. Okay. No, I'm saying I'm I, I I'm saying merely this. He had a kind of spokesperson, right? There's like the person and the spokesperson. I hardly need to drive that point home today in our world to anyone who watches the news. But th that means that what Shabtai Tzvi actually did and was doing and how it was explained by the spokesperson are two different things. So Shabtai Tzvi found himself before the Sultan who said, would you prefer to die or become an, a Muslim? And he was like, I'm Muslim, sounds okay. And he got a whole severance package from the Jewish people and went out to Montenegro to sing uh, love songs in, in Ladino on the ramparts of the fortress near the Albanian border. Okay, so that's, that's history. And another part of the history is the spokesperson. The spokesman was Nathan of Gaza. Nathan of Gaza explains everything to, to the followers along these lines. Now, most of the followers are like, screw you. I mean, the guy converted. We're not interested in what you have to say anymore. But he had already written this enormous amount of literature explaining Shabtai Tzvi along the lines that I said, that there are sparks to be found in all these weird places. And when he converts to Islam, that's another strange move for the Messiah that Nathan explains with the same theory. Well, he, of course he had to become a Muslim. Where else is the evil at its worst? So that's Nathan explaining Shabtai Tzvi. Yes. Yeah. So when, when you're talking about Sabbatianism, are you talking about only the things that happened about Shabtai Tzvi after he was expelled? Or did he have a certain kind of 
approach to Kabbalah even before this that's within that? Okay, <clears throat> all really good questions. I, I hope that we can f flesh this out without losing the, the visuals too much, but you're right that it's important to, to be clear. So it, it, you just have to define, you have, everyone has to define the, their terms, right? Sabbatianism could potentially refer to any number of things, but there's the period usually, um, like Sholem's book covers the years of the Messianic movement that you could basically say the first half of the 1660s, are culminating in 1666, he didn't. He said he would one day publish a companion volume for the kind of the what happened afterwards, but he didn't get around to it. Other people have worked on the late 17th century and beyond. My what I'm trying to do now, what I hope to be able to do a little bit today, is to to briefly look at Nathan as. Um, as my first case study and what it means to visualize a Sabbatean Kabbalah, and then look at things that emerge only in the 18th century in the period of its, of its, of its, uh, how I described it before, that it's seeping into the groundwater, and then what do you do with it? How would you know if you're looking in the 18th century at a diagram that had been informed by Sabbatean Kabbalah? So, yeah, and the, the other thing that I would simply say is that Sabbatianism is it's kind of like saying Kabbalah or Luriana Kabbalah or Judaism. It's like one of these terms that from a distance seems to apply nicely to some sort of specific thing that you can identify. But when you get a bit closer, you see that just like Kabbalah is there are a dozen different schools of Kabbalah, or maybe more, maybe as many writers as there are schools. And Lurian, Luriana Kabbalah is also not one cloth. And Sabbatean Kabbalah is not one cloth. If you start looking at Sabbatean figures, you'll see one of them thinks uh, this way, that way. They disagree amongst themselves, is what I'm trying to say. So there isn't one Sabbateanism either. That's one of the things that will emerge even visually in the coming moments. Yes? And I'm getting the referee is saying I gotta I gotta hustle. Can it wait? Hmm? Just real quick, to understand Sabadianism, even before the, the heresy, don't you have to understand that that belonged to the school that once the Messiah comes, it was supposed to be shaptized the the rules of Judaism, hmm. the rules of the Torah no longer were applicable, so you could basically do anything. Ah. He had wild orgies before the time he converted to the being Muslim, sure. married a Torah, sure. all the rules were no longer applicable. And that, that's well, really what's a Batius in Well, I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't go too far with that, personally. I mean, I would say the idea that the mitzvot are canceled in the time of the Messiah is just like, what are you going to do? It's in the Talmud. It's not like a school. It's just what the rabbi said. So, Except for Purim, of course, which we'll talk about tonight, anyone who comes. Purim is the only thing that's not going to be canceled. And saying that just makes you a rabbi. It doesn't make you a Sabbatean. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I, don't, I don't think so. I think also it's really important to remember that, this, that although I've said many times Sabbatianism, I didn't make this up, Sabbatianism is the second biggest messianic movement in the history of the Jewish people after Christianity. It wasn't the second most popular messianic movement because 
Jews around the world were like really getting into Nathan of Gaza's Kabbalistic treatises that were that were adapting Luriana Kabbalah to Shabtai Tzvi's strange behaviors, but they actually just heard that the Messiah was around and that he was really cool, and they were li they didn't have CNN or other forms of false news, so they just were able to get excited that the Messiah was coming. They literally had no idea. They literally had no idea. So most of the messianic fervor was was generated because people were just getting excited like uh, you know like 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 anyone might if they heard that there was this thing taking off and they were thirsty for it but you don't need Kabbalah to explain it and and people had remarkably little information about just how weird things were getting the kind of things that you mentioned Nathan knew about and was concerned about and there were some incidents that needed good PR work and he was on it but I don't think it I don't think it explains the whole thing I got to listen to Ari right Ari Ari says step on the gas and also this particular technology unlike my typical one doesn't have a clock for me to watch so that I can see all the time how much time is left okay so I'm going to go fast and just show you some pretty pictures that are really cool and try and explain them a little bit so that's Nathan. That's supposed to be a reliable engraving of Nathan of Gaza. Now, this is from a manuscript of Nathan's that is in Berlin at the, uh, at the Central Library in Berlin. And it's a, it's a manuscript, like a number of Nathan's manuscripts that includes diagrams. He was very interested... This is an actual manuscript of Nathan's Kabbalah with diagrams in Nathan's own handwriting. Um, I think I, if I zoom up to it, now this is, this is like, you know, the real deal. So you're getting another one of these sort of concentric circles presentations of the cosmogony with some, um, some uh, inscriptions Right, uh, Shoresh Yamin, Shoresh Small, the root of the right, the root of the left. He speaks about other things, but the, the, what's really interesting is, um, is basically this whole, this whole inner circle is meant to be this realm of inner brilliance that is at the, even though it's bound in this way, it's um, it's it's capturing the uh, the very highest lights of of uh, of the divine realm, and the and the lower inscription says Zehu Tihiru Hatachton Shalonivna. This is the lower brilliance which was uncreated. So this is this is a something. It's not exactly a heretical thing to say by that that in the highest realms of the divine, there's some kind of light that was never built, that was never developed. But this is one of those sort of, I would say, really interesting concepts that Natan played with that is distinctive. Other Kabbalists before him didn't write about this particular realm of the divine that was a kind of undeveloped light or uncreated light. But for Natan, it was very important because in his Kabbalah, basically, you could say that 
all of creation as we knew it up until now has been developing from the seed of light that was God's intention to create with and to make a world with. That in that ur divinity before creation, part of God's, well, let's say God willed to begin the process of creation, but only, and this is Natan's innovation, only the part of God that willed to create participated in the creation, but there was another part of the infinite God that didn't will at that time for creation to begin. And there's a whole realm of the infinite that didn't get involved with creation. It's a light that's undeveloped, unbuilt, that's not been involved until now, and that this sort of primordial light that's never been created, never been developed, is the source of the transformations and innovations and renewal that we will experience now in the messianic age. So the whole crazy messiah thing is coming from a part of the divine that's never been involved in creation before. So that's why Nathan needed Mashiach. He needed chapter 3 to really become the leader. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Chaptites V is, is sort of acting this out. He's, he's realizing this dimension. Also, in re regarding your question, Chaptites V wasn't even into all this, by the way. He liked learning Zohar. He didn't care about all this. Yes. Is this Natan's script? Yes. Are you like a handwriting analysis person? <laughs> well, I, I thought it was a fairly modern thing. Oh, well, it is. It's 17th century. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it oh. A renewal? Yeah. No, you you can downplay everything you've ever been told about Ben Yehuda and the revival of Hebrew. We had it, a speaker about that. Don't. Oh, okay. So here's here's a little example of Natan's writing, but we don't really have. But they did. They but they all could talk in Hebrew too when they would meet, and they didn't in the within your community. Like I'm going to speak to you in English, but if I meet a Jew who I don't share English with, I'll speak to them in Hebrew. I mean, this was always going on. Hebrew as a spoken language never stopped. So. But it was probably more a different Hebrew, ancient Hebrew, a biblical Hebrew, religious Hebrew. What? What was rejected? Oh, because it's because uh, Lashon Hakodesh. You can't you can't start talking about. But for vernacular is always different, and even even Hasidim who wrote journals often kept their journals in Hebrew. We have them from the 18th century journals in Hebrew. Okay, sorry. Anyway, Natan's Kabbalah asks these amazing questions here. I'll even say like. He says, let's just take, for example, this, this image. Wait, how do I, let me get. Typical Lurianic image here of the circles of uh, the first rings of creation being pierced vertically by a line. You can see that in the, at the very top it says the kav ein sof, the line of the infinite. And then that line is labeled Adam Yashar, which is, means, the means basically means straight man. 
but straight Adam, it's another designation for primordial Adam or Adam Kadmon. And this is a pre or non anthropomorphic visualization of Adam Kadmon. And, and in, this visual, in this visualization, so to speak, maybe I should just do it with a pointer, the head of Adam Kadmon, so to speak, would be here, and the feet of Adam Kadmon would be here. And the center, like the belly button, the pupic of Adam Kadmon is right here, which is just exactly where we are, so to speak, in the concentric model of the cosmos. So, uh, so, he, so, so Natan asked this question, like nobody asked this before Natan. He says, like, what's so great about up there? You know, what's so great about the heavenly realms if we're at the, if we're sitting on Adam Kadmon's puppet, like we're at the, we're in the place that's as holy as any place, right? So he asks a very kind of audacious question. You can see it here, but I don't want to spend too much time on it. This is mostly just to make you agree with me that, that he's charming and fascinating and that his Kabbalah is really cool. But, um, but now I want to give you three before we have to go, right? I gotta show you three manuscripts that I found and ask myself about them. Are these regular Kabbalah? Are these Sabatian Kabbalah? What are, we, what are we looking at here? Does it matter that, that they were, that, that, we, that we can find some sort of Sabatian elements in these, in these uh, d uh, documents? What, what's going on here? And this is really the, this is, these are the case studies fresh from the laboratory. The first one is called uh, The Ilan of Primordial Adam by Natan or Nossen Netta Hammerschlag. And this is, uh, this is, this is from his own, um, this is, these are all autographs. We don't have anybody else's copies of his manuscripts. All of the ones that I know of are in Oxford and in Munich for interesting reasons, but I won't go into it now. You can see that not only was Natan a Kabbalist, we might imagine if he's part of this lecture, but he was also uh, um, a Chazen, that's part of his name, Natan Chazen. He was also a scribe, and you can see he wasn't a bad illustrator. I call him the Art Spiegelman of the 17th century. So this is uh, from the one of the frontispieces, his most incredible Ilan is this one that you can hardly make heads or tails of here, but I'll zoom in for you so you can see a little bit better. This is an Ilan of, of the primordial Adam with full-on anthropomorphic representation of Adam Kadmon as a king, not just any king we'll see in a moment, a Habsburgian emperor. And not just any Habsburgian emperor either, you'll see in a moment. In any case, um, it's an extraordinary document. This is in Munich, you'll see in a second, and it's very big. You'll also see that in a minute. The crown that you just saw here a moment ago, if you look really carefully at this crown, it's a lot like the famous crown of Rudolf II, right, that's now in Vienna. So it's clearly the Habsburg crown. And Jews love the Habsburg crown. You can find it on many um, objects, sacred objects. This, these are from the collection of William Gross. And these are some images that he sent to me. I said, William, you gotta send me Habsburg crowns. So he sent me you know, 200 images of Habsburg crowns. Here they are uh, also on 
for the Torah scroll, and here's a Habsburg crown in a, a menorah for Hanukkah. It's in the, it, well, it's the Habsburg Empire. So you're getting Hungary and Czechoslovakia and Austria. and It's that whole Central European region. Uh, uh, so what about Poland, Lithuania? You won't get Habsburg crowns there. Mm -mm. So this is the great Leopold I, who was emperor for decades including the decades of the Sabatian Messianic movement and for some time thereafter, um, including the time when Natan or Nosanetta Hammerschlag was creating his visualization of the primordial Adam and the whole of Luriana Kabbalah. And here's something that when I saw that image of Leopold I, I realized... That's the coolest thing you've done. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's what. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I can, see that. I can, I can loop that for you. I'll get, get a couple of little encore, encore. But I nearly, I mean, I was working on this manuscript for a while before I thought, well, Adam Kadmon, the primordial Adam, looks a lot like a Habsburgian emperor. What did the Habsburgian emperor look like at the time this guy was working? And so then I just Googled, you know, the list of Habsburgian emperors and saw, oh, it's Leopold I. I was like, show me some pictures of Leopold I. And I was like, oh my goodness, Leopold I. So God, is it God? Is it the Messiah? Is it Adam Kadmon? Well, it's, it's, he says, he labels this Adam Kadmon, the primordial Adam. But as Habsburgian emperor, seemingly, well, I'll have a, something more to say about it. Here I am last summer uh, looking at the original with a librarian at the uh, Staatsbibliothek in Munich. Just, uh, just mostly I put that in so you get a sense of the scale and how they preserve the manuscript. It's many parchments sewn together and they have it in a kind of rolled around this drum and uh, they're, they're, they're kind of fetishistic about it with the silly white gloves and everything, but whatever. That's the way they, that's the way they operate. You really don't need white gloves, but it's a total urban legend. Nobody had white gloves for the last 500 years who've dealt with these things. Nothing happened. Okay, so, okay. So that's a pretty audacious image of Adam Kadmon that you saw before, of, well, of, of uh, Leopold I. The only picture of Adam Kadmon that's even more audacious is this one that was part of Knorr, uh, Christian Knorr van Rosenroth's diagrams. <laughs> this is not one that got back into the Jewish manuscripts. But it's perfectly keyed. It's an excellent drawing. <laughs> but uh, the Jews didn't pick this one up. But, uh, so then I started thinking, well, is the answer, well, one of my first questions when I thought this was, could, would it be a heretic who would make such a human-like presentation of, of, of the divine? Is that part of the heresy? Is that part of the, something being a bit off? So we know that I mean, to, for a Christian, it wouldn't be so weird. There is a colophon here, you can see. This is where the guy who produced the manuscript says something about himself, and it's all, he writes here, 
about the time it took him to do it and where he did it and who his family was and so forth. Um, the, he says 16 years. But I think it includes, it's not, his wording is a bit ambiguous, but he also created notebook studies before he started putting things on this parchment. Um, I'll show you them in a second. From some of his other works that I only discovered rather recently when I was in Oxford, I discovered um, that in fact he was from Prostitz or Prostnitz originally, uh, Hammerschlag, which when he was born was before the Sabatian movement had come into existence. But um, he, uh, it be subsequently became a hotbed of the Sabatian movement. And you can see that, uh, well, you can't, you can see the letters, but I would have to tell you for convenience sake that he turns everything into some kind of a gematria of Shabtai. His name, his father's name, where he was born, everything. Once you start looking, you see that he's, he's, he's got a little bit of a Shabtai Tzvi obsession. Here also, he writes, this is just, this is the gate of the, for, the, for the righteous to enter. And he writes, a gate in, uh, in Aramaic is tara, and, and it has the same numerical value as Naphtali, which is his father's name, and it has the acrostic of Tzvi and so forth. He's, he's, he's totally obsessed. And this is also super awesome. This is from the preparatory um, notebook of the diagram that we just saw that was in living color. And this one has one cool feature that not even that awesome giant uh, scroll has, and that is, right, it has a pop-up tongue. It has a pop-up tongue, yes. And I first, I first saw this in Jerusalem in a microfilm, and it looked like the same page had been photographed twice in the, in the microfilm. I thought, oh, that's odd. They made a mistake and photographed it twice until I looked more carefully and saw they had to photograph the page once with the tongue up and once with the tongue down because the tongue has something on it. You have to be able to see both. Um, so um, this is an, the only other place that you can find such, such audacious anthropomorphic representations of the divine face is in, a, in the manuscripts of a, a rabbi from Baghdad. Believe it or not, I don't think it has any connection to any of this, but in, also in the Islamic world, it's very strange to see such bold anthropomorphisms, but it does, it does exist. So it's not a singular marker of heresy. There's nothing heretical that we know of about this rabbi named Sassoon ben Mordechai Shanduch of Baghdad. He was a very important rabbi in Baghdad. Could you go back to the last image? Sure. The, the one on, the, on my right were... Yeah, the eyes and the nose and the mustache. <laughs> but not the tongue, the other one. Yeah, yeah. the eyes, and nose, and nostrils, mustache. Well, those are nostrils. Yeah, these are two nostrils, and this is a little bit of a... Uh, Habsburgian mustache. You always have to have a little curl at the end of the mustache. And you have, of course, eyebrows. Everything is nicely labeled, too, here. You don't, no room for doubt. It's all, it's all right there. You, now, you can see further down, i just give you a little close-up. You see the arms, 
Ah, well, I was going to show you, Tov. You can see there are arms here, and uh, it's a little bizarre, but the legs show up over here. <laughs> Oops. Why do they do this? It's not a perfect program, but it, it has its coolness. Um, where da, 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 da. Here you go. Uh, there. Almost. The, the, everything, you can see, these, some, I, I think I mentioned before, some of these big diagrams can have 20, 30,000 words of text inscribed upon them, and uh, they will usually be uh, things that are associated, in this case, this is all basically Lurianic Kabbalah and different correspondences. Um, um, yeah, these are not even, th these are not like, they don't have semantic meaning. They're, they're basically uh, names or acrostics right here. I mean, they're, the labels are like uh, right thigh, left thigh, you know, right, um, what do you call this? Calf. calf, yeah, right calf, left calf, right foot, left foot. But then it's all d divine names that don't have, don't actually mean anything. There are cases, certainly, where um, there's narrative text that, oh, darn it, it wasn't supposed to do that. There is all that text there on the sides. Um, yeah, there's tons, tons of text on the side that gets into um, all kinds of detail. Here's an example of something that, if you start reading, you'll see it says here in Otsrot Chaim, which is a work by Chaim Vital, he says, on, on page 12, was an un, it's an unpublished work. It's literally an unpublished work, so who knows on page 12 of what copy, where, who, what. Um, I found, right? And this, this is the language, and it says in C, now look over on the right side, ayen b'tzad yamin shalcha b'dibur ha-matchil v'zelashon. So he says, you gotta look over on the right side to see what I found in Otsrot Chaim. So you go to the right side. And here it says, This is the language that I found in Otsrot Chaim. And then he gets into this whole thing. All you really need to do is look and see that at the center of it all is, guess what? It all adds up to Shabtai. Now, I looked through every manuscript of Otsrot Chaim that has survived from the 17th century, and there isn't anything on any page 12 or anywhere else that says that it all equals Shabtai. So this is clearly a fake, a fake quote that he's put into his Ilan, which doesn't really get you anywhere except to say that Shabtai is awesome. Like this is a guy who it, it comes out, who had a, um, a kind of devotion to the idea of Shabtai Tzvi. But what's coming out of, this is from the first case study, slowly, slowly, is that one form of Sabbatianism that you can visualize or practice in the post-Messianic movement era is a Sabbatianism that's not about theology. It's about the figure of Shabtai Tzvi. The fig Shabtai Tzvi is some kind of salvific force. Even his name has a salvation in within it. Yeah? Um, they didn't have whiteout. Right. 
mm. don't see any scratches out or an oops or you know right. how are you able to Some, sometimes see areas there are where there have been mistakes yeah sometimes they'll on. cross things out and no no and I mean I don't know for certain but it could be also that the this that it could be scratched off without leaving too much of a trace but but we know yeah yeah for sure I I, I think I may have one here his some of his other uh, notebooks including the preparatory notebooks for this giant parchment take that same kind of Shabtai obsession and ramp it up even more I won't go into the nitty gritty of it with you here but you just see it the guy's completely obsessed here's another page from yet another work where I'm underlining all of the hot spots this is an image of Shabtai Tzvi uh, I thought it was kind of nice that he specifically mentions that this is what happened in, in the time of the emperor, empire of Leopold I So this is the guy that Nussen loved, Sabatianism for him, and um, it would seem others, including the Donme, which is the most well-known surviving group of Sabatianisms, that, of Sabatians that exist till today. This is a kind of devotion to the figure of Shabtai Tzvi, not to Nathan's theology, but to the figure of Shabtai Tzvi. And uh, you see that, you know, to a certain extent, that was already implicit in, in the movement itself. Shabtai Tzvi is the king, the, you know, almost the worship of Shabtai Tzvi. This is taken from a publication that came out at the height of the Messianic uh, movement in, the 16, in 1666 in Amsterdam. What reviled is the false Messiah? Not, not yet, only afterwards. Yeah, you have to wait. You know, while he was while he was working, he was doing well. But I, I throw this in just because today we also can see that a figure without so much regard it wasn't exactly something that Lubavitch Rebbe said. You know, we're not revising Jewish theology based on Lubavitch Rebbe's teachings. But now this figure in his face—if you were in Israel, you'd see this face is everywhere. It's everywhere. And uh, says, King Messiah. So this is apparently something that can be reproduced. Um, another two examples, I'll be quicker about them, but just to give you totally different angles on this problem, uh, another Ilan that um, is in, the, in Bill Gross's collection, which is how uh, I came to study it, is very long. It's basically two parchment scrolls that have been pasted together. The bottom part of it is, is the sort of typical one that I showed you last week, the so-called Popper's diagrammatic scroll. The upper one is a unicum, which means it's, we only have one copy of anything that's remotely like it. And it's really beautiful from, a, from the point of view of its calligraphy and everything. I mean, take a look at that. It's really nice and really interesting. Really interesting and quite unusual, right? Look at the, the way, for example, in this frame, some people were interested in that squarish, circular representation of the Sfirot and how he is uh, 
incorporated it here very, very nicely here in the center. And it's, it's, really, it's really special. Um, it turns out that it's based, the whole top part that's a unicum, is based on a book that was published in courts um, by a figure named uh, Yaakov Kopel, who is considered a kind of precursor of the uh, Hasidim. He's like a, a figure be, who was between Sabbatianism and Hasidism, but somehow connecting the, connecting the dots. And he's one of the figures who was outed by the heresy-hunting academics of the last generation. Because they found that in this book, by Koppel, there are some phrases from Nathan of Gaza. So, oh my goodness, he's a, he was a closet heretic. Of course, you already know my opinion on that, that having some material from Nathan's books in your book doesn't mean anything, because who knows if you even realize it was from Nathan. He didn't attribute anything to Nathan. And in fact, Tishbi says at one point, this guy must be a Sabatian because some of the things he says are so weird, even though I haven't found them anywhere, including not in Sabatian literature. That weird means Sabatianism as far as I'm concerned, which I think is an extremely troubling way of working historically, but there you go. Here's the, here's the weirdness visualized in the diagram. And this gets back to what we saw in that first diagram by Nathan of Gaza. Nathan showed in his, in his diagram that there was this chaotic, unbuilt light that was at the core of the divinity. And this one, it's a little different because here he's, he's locating the origins of evil. But rather than do that in a way that's typical of most Kabbalists, like as a kind of cancerous growth on the left side of the Holy Sfirot, he has embedded the origins of evil at the core of the Godhead. So, so evil is somehow co-equal with the most profound elements of, of the Godhead. So this is a, is it, is it heresy to say that? It could be because Nathan said it and because Nathan was a heretic, supposedly, so anyone who says that must be a heretic. But, it's just like a different view of the origin of evil. I mean, if it weren't said by Nathan, I don't think anyone would be in a particular tizzy over it. Yes? What's the significance of the three, four different scripts on that? Oh, I mean, it's all, it's, it's all one hand, but the, the distinctions between... Uh, you know, headlines, I would say, and, 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 and commentary material is made through the adoption of different fonts. It's interesting to see how, how scribes sometimes copy the conventions of printed books and, and vice versa is also true, but scribes are using multiple hands to create those kinds of effects. Five, I'm down to five. Okay, so that's evil. I appreciate the, the heads up on that. Um, this is the last case study that I wanted to share with you today anyway. Also, I d discovered it first in the Gross Collection, but there's another copy owned by the Lehman Sisters who live in the States, and a third copy uh, in, um, in 
in Jerusalem now in the National Library as well. Um, okay, and with great difficulty, I was able to ascertain that this was produced in 1734 in Amsterdam by a man named Yosef Shaprut de Gabay. It's a pretty nice one. It's on one poster-sized parchment sheet, and it's, 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 um, it's quite an ambitious attempt to combine what you, what you would normally see in an exclusively vertical long scroll of the emanation going down the middle with what you would see in the most elaborate of the circular models. Hmm? Oh, sorry. I also don't exactly know how, how big I can make it, but basically you see a very ambitious attempt to correlate the levels of creation as they're narrated in the two frameworks, the linear framework and the circular framework. Usually the Luriana Kabbalists keep the visualization separate. The leaser show you how the spherot look if they're em emitted, um, emanated in those like pond-like circular concentric spheres or in the vertical or linear formation. But this guy tried to have it all. And it's pretty cool, pretty successful. This is the way that you typically see with very insignificant detail the piercing of the circular emanations by the linear emanation of the primordial atom. That's the only inscription on this very typical di Lurianic diagram. A bunch of circles and then Adam Kadmon is inscribed here. It's hard to read, but that says Aleph Dalet Mem Adam Kadmon. Okay, this is a more sophisticated attempt to do something like that of corresponding the guy has left who's done this all of those circles within circles out of the picture but given a rough sense of them along with the coordinates and the in linear perspective um, okay so what i want to show you here oh yet again another attempt to do something similar and you can see the facial features a little bit here if you look carefully enough um, okay, and this is the only one that had a colophon saying what year it was done in and what, who, who done it is the one in the layman collection, but the layman sisters, God bless them, have uh, framed this parchment, and although they have been very nice and very um, willing to cooperate with me, there is a limit, and they refuse to take it out of the frame for proper reproduction right, and digitization for study. And the biggest problem is that it's smushed under the frame right where it says who did it. So this is exactly where it says who wrote it, where it's folded. I was like, you, come on, you know, you gotta like, please un take it out and iron it. I don't know, I wanna see who wrote it. And I was able to, I was able to figure it out because I was enough here to read Yosef Ben something Adoni Avi, it's Yosef, son of my father, Avraham. This I couldn't read. She something, Digabai. Anyway, it didn't take me too long to figure out that there was a, a Yosef ben Avraham Shaprut Digabai in Amsterdam. And of course, luckily, the year is still readable. And then I started, I contacted the people in Amsterdam at the Etzheim Library and said, what do you have from 
this guy, and they started sending me images. This guy made ketubas, and he made rhyming poems that he gave to people for their wedding presents. He's a really fine, lovely art. Nothing about him as a Kabbalist, so I don't really know where, where he got such an ambitious plan to make this crazy diagram, but it, it could be that his, we know his father was a Kabbalist. It's possible that he worked together with his father or this was some, some, something that he did on the basis of his father's work. I don't know, but he was more of a riddler and an artist, apparently, than a known Kabbalist in the community of Amsterdam in the first half of the 18th century. But here you can see his name, Yosef Shiprut de Gabay. Now, why is it in this lecture? Because if you look closely, he, sp he speaks here about the lights, ha'orot nikra'im, or she'ein bo machshava, ve'hayosher nikra, or she'yesh bo machshava. That's Nathan DNA. There are two kinds of light. Light that had a thought. God had a thought to use this light for creation, and then there's the light, she'ein bo machshava. There's no thought in that light. There's no divine thought in that. And, the, and as I said before, the interesting light from a messianic point of view is that light that has yet to manifest in any way. And now he continues with more. This, just this one line is basically lifted from some sort of Nathan manu, um, manuscript apparently, and it has that Nathan DNA. So what do we do? Does that make it? Is that a Sabatian visualization of the, of the divine because it has one line in that immense visualization that says that there's, you know, the, from the light uh, uh, to which no thought has ever been attached, the Messiah will, will, one, will emerge? Or is it just kind of accidental and interesting to a person in the 18th century who may have received that embedded in a manuscript with otherwise authentic Lurianic Kabbalah and thought it was cool and popped it in there because he had some extra space in those rings. We don't know. So it's a bit of a riddle, which is why I focused on the word chida here, and, and, uh, which means a riddle. He's a bit of a riddle. But one thing I can say about the last two examples that I showed you, well, we, we saw three different things, really. We saw the first one we saw was besides Natan, right? The first one we saw was Hammerschlag's Leopold I, and this obsession with Shabtai Tzvi. So his visualization of God, you could say, becomes conflated with his obsession with Shabtai Tzvi, who he worships as a kind of emperor or king of the universe, whom he models on the emperor king of the universe of his time, Leopold I, and, and it's very much a cult of, of Shabtai Tzvi as King Messiah that he's infatuated with. The, the diagramming per se, the, the, the visualization of the structure, the mapping of the divine world is, uh, is, is not, I mean, it, you could say it's very rich and it's occasionally weird, but it's, there's nothing really off about it. Nothing has changed. It's just that Adam Kadmon, instead of being like a stick figure or an emoticon or just a, an empty strip, is all of a sudden this 
Habsburgian emperor, um, and we see this obsession with Shabtai Tzvi, but there's nothing about the map that has changed, right? So it's kind of like the iconography changed, but not the map itself, not, not the coordinates. The next one we saw was the, the one of Kopel, the Sharei Gan Eden, the gates of, Ga, of the Garden of Eden, Ilan, where I showed you there, the map changed. Evil got taken from the periphery and lodged at the center of the Godhead. That's a Sabatian move. Was Kopel a Sabatian because he adopted that from some of his Lurianic sources and was the person who decided they were going to make uh, an Ilan, a parchment scroll based on Kopel's best-selling book, Gates of the Garden of Eden. Was that person a Sabatian because they took something from a rabbi who was in his own day not known at all as a Sabatian. In fact, he writes lots of anti-Sabatian things in the book. So does that, is that a Sabatian, Elon? They're the, they're the visualization change. The map changed. How much does it matter? Is it just one school of Lurianism that's now indebted to Sabatianism and shouldn't be considered heretical? I'm not in the business of deciding who's a heretic or not, but... I think also the results are, are kind of ambiguous in that way. And the third one we saw, nothing changes. It's a very ambitious project yet again, but you can't penalize someone for being ambitious. And one line is taken from, from, from Nathan of Gaza. It's a great line, but is it incriminating? Does it make a difference? Hard to say. Um, I think what these show more than anything to a person interested in the history of all of this is that Sabatianism had become d domesticated by the 18th century and rather unremarkable and unidentifiable as heretical. And it shows up in, it has different forms, um, but none of them are really breaching any great walls. Perhaps the most outlandish of them all is that Hammerschlag with which I began the case studies. Um, although all it does really is picture Adam Kadmon in a more anthropomorphic way than we are used to. But we saw that he's not alone. That wonderful communal rabbi in Baghdad did something that wasn't much different, really. And, uh, and the Donme, of course, the Donme are an example of people who take their worship of Shabtai Tzvi and turn it into kind of their, their religion to our, to our day. But Hammerschlag doesn't seem to have had any uh, residual impact on the Jewish community. There are no Hammerschlagian Sabatians today, although I have made some friends with Hammerschlags on Facebook just because I couldn't resist. Um, and uh, Oh, in fact, the best one of all is I found on Facebook there's a person whose name is Ilan Hammerschlag. Well, I requested his friendship, but I haven't gotten a response yet. So that's it for that's it for now and uh, thank you very much. <laughs>